Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Leslie Powell, Director of Outreach for the World Fellows Program. With me today is Hakan Altine, a 2009 Yale World Fellow. Until recently, Hakan was Executive Director of Turkey's Open Society Foundation, a Soros Foundation organization dedicated to democratic reform and social justice. Since joining the Open Society Foundation in 2001, Hakan has supported Turkey's evolution toward a more open society by focusing on European Union accession and the aspirations of the middle class. It's nice to have you here, Hakan. It's great to be here, Lacey. You're a strong advocate of Turkey's accession to the European Union. Given Europe's skepticism, or perhaps the better word is reluctance, as well as the slow progress on necessary reforms in Turkey, what do you think the likely scenario is? Uh, if I had to bet my retirement on Turkey becoming a member of the EU, I don't think I would put my 401k into that fund. Because um, it, for, mem for Turkey to become a member, both sides need to perform at 120%. And we know from history that sometimes they do, but over the long run, this may not be very likely. At the same time, I would still put 10% of my 401k into that very attractive hedge fund because the returns are so huge. Because if Turkey and EU do in fact voluntarily f uh, merge their futures, this will be the stuff for Nobel Peace Prize for the century. So the returns are high, and uh, but not as a main care main mainstream scenario. I'll ask a rather crude question. Why should the European Union include a country that is arguably not in Europe? And the follow-on question is, if membership is extended to Turkey, who's next? Both very good questions. I would say Turkey is in Europe if you look at the map of Council of Europe or Eurovision Song Contest or soccer, soccer leagues in Europe. The only pan-European organization that Turkey is not a member of is the European Union. And by treaty, European Union is open to all European countries that fulfill the criteria. So this is not a privilege that's being bestowed on Turkey by President Sarkozy or Chancellor Merkel. It's a right. Turkey needs to fulfill the criteria, and then it will become a member of the EU. And this is also the unanimous decision of heads of state of Europe. In 1999, they said Turkey is a candidate country to join the Union based on the same criteria as any other uh, uh, candidate country. And in 2005, they declared that negotiations have started and the shared goal of these negotiations is, is Turkey's membership. Now, on the question of what is next, who is next, technically speaking, all members of Council of Europe can be members of the European Union. So Ukraine or Georgia can one day, when they fulfill the criteria, and if they choose to do so, can become a member of the Europe. And this is not true for, let's say, North Africa. So. Uh, the argument you hear in France that if they get Turkey, Algeria, or Morocco, or Tunisia will be next is at least not supported by technicalities of European law. So one might say that you're very cautiously optimistic. Um, <clears throat> apparently, they've asked uh, Jean Monnet, the founder of European Union, whether he was optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the European project. And he said, I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I'm busy and I'm determined. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll work at it and, and we'll see where the chips will fall. We've seen over the last few years famously secular modern Turkey change course with the rise to power of the more culturally conservative Justice and Development Party. 
Do you think this cultural shift is the beginning of a long-term trend? Again, another very good question. And um, yes, Turkey is, is really substantially circular. For example, we don't allow women with headscarves to attend Turkish universities. They can attend Yale, they can attend Sorbonne in Paris, but they cannot attend Turkish universities. Um, at the same time, as you noted, we have a party with his lineage, its lineages are in, in Islamist politics. So how do we square this? I will tell you my personal assessment and the assessment of the foundation. A survey after survey shows that Turks are culturally conservative, but they're also categorically opposed to using religion as a reference in, um, in, in organizing the public sphere. So, so far, this is a tenable constellation um, and does not require sort of militant democracy, sort of pushing back expressions of, of religion. It doesn't mean that this can be left on autopilot. Clearly, one needs to follow this uh, carefully. But so far, I see no, no, no reasons for alarm. Let's talk about the Open Society Foundation. Sure. When did the Open Society Foundation begin its work in Turkey? In Turkey, 2001, but in the world, in 1979. Started in Eastern Europe. Uh, in fact, it started in South Africa. South Africa. Yes, uh, George Soros, um, when he turned 50 and, and uh, realized that he had more money than he could reasonably spend in his own lifetime or in the lifetime of his children, uh, went back to his convictions. And he was a student of Karl Popper at the London School of Economics. Um, so he, this open society notion has animated him uh, for a long time. And he saw that black Africans, black South Africans could not attend good universities. So he established a scholarship scheme for black Africans to attend universities. And then in early 80s, uh, Eastern Europe, as you noted, and then Balkans were a big thing and Russia. And now we are in more than 60 countries. Uh, would you say that the work of the Open Society Foundation has contributed in some tangible way to the openness of society in Turkey? I would say so. I mean, what it means to be an open society is really up to each society, or in fact, each individual to decide. Uh, we, we think even the U.S. needs to be a more open society, or Europe, Western Europe needs to be more open societies than they are right now. But I would say clearly in Turkey, we had uh, very tangible uh, uh, contributions to make. What are some of the greatest challenges to, shall we say, opening society in Turkey? In Turkey. Uh, right now, in 2009, I would say xenophobia, uh, our, our, our utter skepticism of things foreign is, is a major stumbling block. Also, huge disparities, regional disparities. We have parts of Turkey with a human development index lower than India, and we have parts of Turkey with a human development index better than Italy and Spain. This can't be, this can't, this can't endure. We need to mitigate this huge disparity. So these are two things that that I would name at the top of my head. Can you, uh, off the top of your head, name any aspect of your work that's been the most gratifying? Mm. I'll, I'll, I'll name two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the debate about Turkey in Europe and our ability to have our friends in Europe come to weigh on this has been gratifying in some abstract level. But on the most tangible way, we worked on the rights of the people with mental disabilities. Um, a very vulnerable group in Turkish society and, in fact, in any society. And, and I think we made a very tangible contribution in, in the larger society, understanding their needs and changing laws and changing medical practices, let's say, in the use of electroshock in treatments of schizophrenia. So uh, one very abstract, one very tangible, but then very many things in between as well.
Interesting. You've recently been focusing your energies on something that you call global civics. Can you tell me about that? Sure. You know, civics is a concept, is a constellation of rights and responsibilities emanating from our citizenship to a state. It's something that we are familiar with. You know, you pay taxes, you obey the laws, you vote, basic civility in, in social relations. But what would a global civics look like? I mean, do we owe anything to people who don't happen to be our compatriots? Do we owe them everything, something in between? I think this is a conversation that we need to have largely because our lives are becoming more and more interdependent. We are no longer like ships passing in the night. We are, our, our proximities, our functional proximities are, is, has, has increased. So I don't think we can navigate our epic interdependence without a basic social contract. And, 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 and you know, one way of talking about this is, is a global civics. Um, um, I wouldn't need, I wouldn't want to come up my own. I would want this to be a conversation. And I would, in fact, wager that university campuses are the places where we should have this conversation because where else do we get four years to grapple with thorny issues and, and very many issues that we are facing from climate change to nuclear proliferation, they have a huge generational climate. So it's less important whether you are from north or south, but it's more important whether you are a 20-year-old or a 60-year-old. So I, I, I think... Universities of the future need to create forums for their students to, to talk about these issues. What would a global compact or contract look like in practice? Uh, I think I care more about the conversation and the process rather than the outcome. And I'll tell you one thought experiment that I've found useful to, to think about this. Um, the seventh billion person will be born in about 1,000 days. Um, now, what would we tell her about what sort of life that awaits her? We can tell her that she will live in excess of 70 years, and that's a very good thing. We will tell her, we can tell her that she will have unprecedented material prosperity in, sp in spite of the disparities. We can tell her that she will have access to information and knowledge much better than the, even the most learned, learned people of a previous century. But we also need to tell her that if she was to face a genocide, she's as vulnerable today as she was a century or two ago or that she's more vulnerable today to catastrophic changes in her environment than a century ago. So we can tell her very many good news, but we can tell so we also need to, in the interest of disclosure, tell her a couple of things that may go wrong. So I will take that to be my compass about what my rights and responsibilities are towards the future generation. But yeah, there are a few other thought experiments one, needs, one can engage in. Again, I'm more interested in the process rather than pushing for my personal uh, uh, verdicts on, on what that would uh, look like. And, um, and, and, and I would say everyone needs to do their own introspection, but then discuss with their friends and family and loved ones and colleagues and, and see what we produce. You've started having this conversation here at Yale. Indeed. And what have you found so far? Um, I think people find this uh, imitation to a conversation uh, uh, very potent. It's difficult to say, no, I'm not going to think about the future, or I'm not going to think about my uh, 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 my responsibility to non-compatriots. I'm just in this for myself. But there have been a number of surrogate debates about global governance or global civics that have sort of bruised people. Um, some have argued that some have used these debates as a way to get to world government by stealth. Clearly, this is not what we want, or I wouldn't want that. I, I think nation states should, should stay. Others have argued that unless we, we care as much about people halfway around the world as we care about our own families, we are somehow 
morally reprehensible. Again, this is not a point of view that I agree with, but these sort of arguments have intimidated otherwise very reasonable people who would be open to these conversations and led them to shut themselves off. So any conversation about global civics at Yale or anywhere else needs to start by diffusing some of these minefields that have been set around us. Thank you for joining me today, Hakan. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. It has been a great pleasure to be here at Lacey. Thank you.